Now, last night, I instructed you on St. Ignatius of Loyola's principle and foundation. We may say that the blueprint of our salvation is contained here. The saint pointed out, man is created for the praise, the reverence, and the service of God, and by these means to save his soul. Everything else on the face of the earth, he pointed out, is a creature and has been made by Almighty God to help us reach our goal. Therefore, we must use the creature insofar as the creature leads us to our eternal salvation. And we should reject the creature insofar as it leads us astray. Consequently, the great saint pointed out, we must make ourselves indifferent to creatures. We do not make our choice on whether the creature pleases us or displeases us. We are indifferent because our goal is God. And if the displeasing creature will lead us to God, we will choose it. And if the pleasing creature will lead us away, we will abandon it. For our criterion is not whether the creature pleases us or pains us. Our criterion is rather, does the creature lead us to our final destiny? Or does it lead us away? And in his conclusion, remember, he told us that we should be indifferent as to whether we live a long life or a short life, whether we enjoy riches or poverty, health or sickness, honor or dishonor. For all of these are creatures. And we have been made not for creatures, but for God. Tonight, the subject is sin, which is the contradictory of the principle and foundation. St. Ignatius bids the one making the exercise to implore Almighty God for a grace. The grace of shame and confusion. Shame for the sins that we have committed. Confusion because we could have been taken as many were during the time they committed mortal sin. And so he first of all puts before our mind's eye the fall of the angels. We must remember that the angel is superior to us. The psalmist says, you have made us a little less than the angel. These angels have a splendor that's far beyond our own. And the leader of the angels, we understand, was one called Lucifer. 
a name meaning in Latin, the one who bears light. God loved Lucifer, adorned him, as I said, with splendor and all manner of magnificent gifts. Yet when Lucifer and his rebel band offended, God did not hesitate to punish him immediately with eternal damnation. And so Ignatius says, we should consider this point and by reflection look upon our own mortal sins. We thought nothing about them possible, but yet they were so offensive to Almighty God that he did not hesitate even though Lucifer and all those who joined in his rebellion had received many graces and favors, he did not hesitate from punishing them most severely. And so when we reflect upon this, we can call out to Almighty God for forgiveness for our sins. We can also protest that we wish to make up for the offenses we have committed by the virtue of penitence. His second consideration is the fall of Adam and Eve. Original sin, of course, was committed by the father of the human race, Adam. But in his meditation, he considers Adam and Eve not looking at the original sin itself. They were beloved of Almighty God, adorned with what we call preternatural gifts. There is, by the way, a difference between what is preternatural and what is supernatural. Supernatural is above anything created. It refers in the first place to God himself. But theologians do point out that by sanctifying grace, we have a participation in the life of God. So, sanctifying grace is also looked upon as supernatural because it does allow us to participate in the life of God himself. What is preternatural is above one level of created being, but not above all of them. An example, in the book of Numbers, we are told about Balaam's ass. Balaam's ass was whipped by Balaam, and he cried out against the injustice. Dumb animals do not speak. But we who are human beings do. We are also creatures. So the fact that we speak is not something supernatural. 
But it would be above the nature of a jackass to do so. Now, Adam and Eve, besides enjoying the friendship of Almighty God, which is signified in the office this week, when the reading from the book of Genesis tells us that God walked with Adam in the cool of the evening. We only walk with our friends. So by this detail, there is indicated to us the friendship between God and man through sanctifying grace. But the author of Genesis mentions that Adam and Eve possessed preternatural gifts, gifts that didn't belong to them merely because they were creatures. One of these gifts is immortality. Because the Lord God said that on the day that they ate from the tree in the center of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would surely die. Which meant, of course, that until they did that, they would live. They would be immortal. Furthermore, we are told that they went about naked and it did not bother them. It would, of course, bother us. And so the theologians point out that in addition to the gift of immortality, they had another gift, freedom from concupiscence. Concupiscence is a desire. And usually, when it is mentioned by spiritual authors, it indicates a desire for something that is sinful. Thirdly, infused knowledge. For in the book of Genesis, we are told that after Adam was created, the Lord God paraded in front of him all of the birds that fly in the sky and the beasts that roam the earth. And whatever name Adam gave to that animal, that was its name. And so, theologians say, since he didn't have time for experience, the knowledge necessary was infused, that is, poured into him by Almighty God. Now, the Lord God gave to Adam and Eve, as I mentioned, the command. They were not to eat the fruit of the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that on the day that they did so, they would die. Next, we are told that the serpent was the cleverest of animals. He approached Eve. He approached Eve for a reason. Because if he could seduce Eve, Adam would surely follow and he begins his conversation. What is this I hear? That the Lord God will not allow you to eat the fruit of any of the trees in this garden? And foolishly, Eve replies, Oh no, we can eat the fruit of all these trees, except for that one over there, the one in the center. For the Lord God tells us that on the day that we do so, we shall surely die. 
The devil, says St. John, was from the beginning a liar and a murderer. He lies in order that he might murder. You will not die, he says to Eve, for the Lord God knows that on the day that you eat that fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good from evil. Reading between the lines, we can deduce that great as her life had been in the garden, Eve chafed because she was subject to the Lord God. And here this strange creature is offering her the opportunity to rebel. And she takes it. And down through the ages, her example has been followed. We know, of course, what the law of God is. And yet, when we commit sin, we knowingly and willingly transgress. In the 16th century, there broke out in Europe the Protestant Revolt. Less than 100 years later, the great St. Francis de Sales became the Apostle of Geneva. He was at the time a young priest. In the aftermath of what was known as the Thirty Years' War, waged between Catholics and Protestants, Europe was exhausted. And so, according to the policy inaugurated at the war's end, people would accept whatever religion their ruler had. The ruler from Geneva went to see the bishop. He was Catholic, but for two generations, all of his subjects had been Protestant. What could be done? Francis de Sales volunteered to go into that region. It was a tankless task. If he wanted to enter into some Protestant church, the door was closed. No one would come to see him. He was a brilliant man. Printing had been around for almost 200 years. And although he had no books, his memory of the early fathers of the church was extraordinary. And so, using the apostolate of the press, he wrote an apologetic work, pasted it in the marketplace. And as a result of his efforts, over the course of a few years, 80,000 Protestants converted to Catholicism. What did he tell them? He told them first and foremost that the Protestant leaders were imposing upon them a falsehood. For we know from 
the book of the Ephesians, that Christ has a bride, the church. The Protestants were now claiming that Christ had rejected his bride and had embraced another. Moreover, he pointed out the doctrines that they propagate have been condemned by early councils of the church. Moreover, they perform no miracles. But we know what? We know that the apostles performed miracles, showing that they were in truth the ambassadors of Christ. And since they performed miracles, it was not necessary for their successors to do so. Their successors followed the doctrines which the apostles themselves received from Christ. But you, he says, have abandoned what the Lord God has told you to do. Then it was in our times that the Holy Father, Pope Paul VI, wrote an encyclical, Humani Vitae, in which he once again reaffirmed the traditional Catholic teaching condemning contraception. The paper was not even dry before some so-called theologians rebelled. It is known that Catholic people embrace contraception at an even greater rate than non-Catholics. The example of Eve is perpetrated down through the centuries. And what did the Lord God do? He punished Adam and Eve severely. He did not condemn to hell, but he removed from them the preternatural gifts. They were exiled from paradise. And all of their descendants come into this world without sanctifying grace and bereft of the preternatural gifts. The preface in the Novus Ordo Mass for the Dead states, we are under the certain sad sentence of death, a punishment laid upon the human race because of the sin of the first man, Adam. What does God think about sin? The all-good, the all-kind, the all-merciful God did not hesitate to expel Adam and Eve from the garden, to inflict punishment upon them. And even though, as I mentioned last night, he forgave them almost immediately of their transgression. They nonetheless had to do severe penance for more than 800 years. How terrible sin must be. And therefore, we examine our own sins. 
We ask that we have contrition for them, sorrow, sadness. We ask further that we might have the grace of penitence and never again commit those horrible sins. The third point that he puts before us in order to stir up our sorrow is this. Imagine, he says, some soul in hell who has committed only one single mortal sin. That's all that is necessary. If we die with one unremitted, unconfessed, unsorrowed for serious sin, we will be forever lost. Or he says, imagine the countless others who are now in hell having committed fewer mortal sins than you have. Now this point is designed more than the others to bring out confusion. Why is it that those people were taken and I was left? It could have been the reverse. I could have been taken and they could have been left. And again, we pray to Almighty God for the grace that we may detest our sins, do penance for them, never commit them again. And finally, in what is called a colloquy, a conversation that the penitent or the exergitant has with Christ, Ignatius says, imagine our Lord hanging on the cross before you. He who exists in unapproachable light has entered into his own creation. Why? The answer is obvious. He has mounted the gibbet of the cross for us men and for our salvation. Then Ignatius writes these words that should be inscribed upon our minds and our hearts. Christ died for me. What have I ever done for Christ? What am I doing for Christ? What will I do for Christ? God bless you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.